Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today on Raise the Line, we're going to get the fascinating perspective of someone who has both experienced a life-threatening medical emergency and who treats people with life-threatening medical emergencies. Dr. Aline Gregosian is duly trained in critical care medicine and emergency medicine. In 2019, she underwent urgent heart transplant surgery after being diagnosed with acutely decompensated heart failure, secondary to dilated cardiomyopathy. Since then, she's been using her platform as a physician to talk to others, especially healthcare professionals, about her unique experiences as a young, critically ill cardiac patient, while also hoping to raise awareness about the importance of organ donation. She's also co-host of the Both Sides of the Stethoscope podcast with fellow heart transplant recipient and physician, Dr. Colby Salerno. And thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It's quite a story. But before we get to that, we want to find out a little bit more about your background and what first got you interested in medicine and particularly critical care emergency medicine. Sure. So my parents tell me, like, since I was a kid, I had always been really fascinated with medicine. Um, I don't remember much of that, but I do remember when I was in high school, I started volunteering at an emergency department. So I'm originally from Glendale, California, here in L.A., and um, I was just volunteering at a local emergency room just a couple hours a week, you know, wanting to go to like a good college. And I ended up loving it. I actually ended up doing it for several years after that um, and kind of in all honesty, I had loved emergency medicine from the beginning. I remember watching one of my now mentors like do like a forehead laceration. And I thought that was like, the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, like what a life-saving thing you can do. So um, that's when I got interested. I really liked it. Even in med school, I remember my own primary care doctor had told me to always have an open mind. Um, and not go into med school knowing what specialty I was going to go into. But the thing is, I ended up liking everything. I actually like just a little bit of everything. Um, and at the end, still stuck to emergency medicine. Once I, I was actually in residency, I realized the part about emergency medicine that I liked the most was kind of the resuscitation and the extremely critically ill patients, which is when I decided to go into, go on and do a fellowship in critical care. So I love, you know, I love training and it's, it's been, it's been a great experience. And, you know, I just got a different perspective of it once I became a patient. So let's talk about your, your heart situation. Did you have heart issues? Were you aware of heart issues before this incident in 2019 or did that come as a surprise? Actually, it was all kind of a surprise. So what happened to me was this was my third year of emergency medicine residency. I had already applied and actually gotten into fellowship at that point. So I just had a few months of residency left. As many people know, you apply to fellowship towards the middle of your last year of residency training. So that's kind of where I was at. And I had been feeling fine. I just remember like while I was on the interview trail for fellowship. So this was like October, November, December of 2018. I had this like persistent, what I thought was like a URI, some cough. And I didn't really think much of it. Like it wasn't keeping me from doing my daily activities. And it wasn't keeping me from like traveling and going to work. But um, it was just like something that was lingering. And so it just got worse towards the around Christmas time of December 2018 and I found myself back in the emergency department 
as a patient, not as a resident. And that's when, you know, everything kind of happened all at once. So we were trying to figure out exactly what was wrong with me, um, did some blood work, chest x-ray, all that stuff. And then by then I had gotten admitted to get kind of a further workup to see what was going on. And I don't remember a lot of this, but I ended up having to get resuscitated pretty acutely, ended up in the ICU. I was intubated. By the time I woke up, like maybe 24, 48 hours later, after doing all these tests, they found out that I had heart failure with an ejection fraction of 5%. So my heart was like barely beating um, and functioning properly. And at that time, they were like, maybe it was a viral myocarditis. We were really unsure what had caused it. But eventually, you know, after a couple of years of more tests, we found out it was a familial dilated cardiomyopathy that I had had, probably triggered by some sort of external factor, um, like a virus. But, you know, there's so many factors that go into these things. So it was sure. all sudden, but, but they do think that maybe I had this predisposition that I just like compensated very well for my whole life. Yeah. So you wake up after that, you're in the ICU, and then you find out you need a new heart? That is almost literally what happened. So they had diagnosed me. This was at the hospital that I had been doing my residency at. Eventually, they transferred me to Penn. And you know, Penn in that area was very well known for their advanced heart failure therapies. And, and I remember even them saying something like, well, we're going to have to transfer you to another hospital with advanced heart failure therapies. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like I had been an ER doctor going into critical care, but I couldn't like fathom. I was like, no, I probably just need a little bit of medication for a couple of weeks. It's probably just a thing that's going to go away on its own. And no, <laughs> by the time I got to Penn, they were like, no, you need a transplant. And so um, I always tell people that from the time of my diagnosis up until the time I was transplanted and left hospital was less than, it was about three weeks. So like I went from a completely normal, like 30 year old to somebody with a heart transplant. It was crazy. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fast. So Mm -hmm. I think people know that there's long, long wait lists for kidneys, Mm -hmm. but I guess they're shorter for hearts. huh? No, actually it's pretty long. Um, The thing that, that, you have to take into consideration when somebody is on the organ transplant waiting list is how sick they are. So the sicker you are, especially with just one type of organ failure, which is generally like the younger people who have been otherwise healthy their whole lives are going to be on the, the the waiting list for less period of time. Blood type also matters, like body size also. It's a lot of things that go into it. Um, but you know, and, and kidneys are a little bit different because you can be on dialysis for a long time as well. Sure. Um, whereas with hearts, it's a little more acute for some people. So there's a few things that go into it. Generally speaking, um, not everybody is able to get a transplant within weeks, but, you know, depending on how sick you are, you are higher up on the list. Yeah. Just amazing to think how quickly you end up, you know, having this completely different life, really. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like in the early stages post-transplant? Early stages. So I remember <laughs> there's a few things that have to go into the answer of this question. So number one was that like everything happened very suddenly. So I had been pretty healthy, athletic, eating well, otherwise, right before I got sick. And I think that helps with the recovery process. So like as quickly as I got sick, my recovery was pretty good. And, you know, knock on wood, wasn't that bad. 
of course I had some issues. Like I think I had rejection early on, which is pretty common um, early on post-transplant. And, you know, there's medication side effects that you have to get used to. So a lot of the medications that you're on are very strong and mess up the lining of your stomach. So you have like GERD and nausea and all these different things. It was just a matter of me kind of learning that this was my new normal. So um, I, I tell my own patients that, and I would even before all this, like once you have something critical happen to you, you're probably never going to go back to who you were before that you can get pretty close, but like my expectations were like, okay, like I'm probably never going to be who I was in November of 2018, but I'm going to try to get as close to that as possible. And if I can't, at least I know that I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there were some side effects of the medications that I had to kind of get used to. And of course the beginning of starting to take these meds is a lot more difficult than, you know, once you've been on them for a while. And then, you know, there's all these like little things that you, you have to go to the doctor all the time get all these cats and all that stuff but but overall um you know considering that the the other thing that could have happened to me was the fact that I could have died like all of that was yeah. nothing compared to what could have been so yeah you get some perspective on life for sure <laughs> right yeah so you're several years out from the transplant at this point can you kind of recap how things have gone and what's your quality of life like right now yeah um i'm actually Next week is going to be my fourth heart anniversary, is what we call it. So, um, it's been, you know, uh, an incredible four years. Uh, I've had some ups, some downs, but overall, I don't think I can complain. Like, you know, I've had a, a, one of the major things that I had to go through after my transplant was a lot of joint issues, which was common with the steroids. So, I actually had to get my hips replaced. Oh gosh, and like. But the thing is, like, once you've had a heart replacement, like, like, <laughs> everything else, else is easy peasy, right? <laughs> no big so, deal. So, like, the perspective that I had with these little issues and things like that was very interesting. Um, quality of life overall is is better than expected. Like, there's a lot of people who assume that once you get a transplant, you're going to be debilitated and bed bound for the rest of your life. And that's not true. I actually went back and finished my training. I actually even went on to do my critical care fellowship. I do have to take a lot of precautions, but it's, it's, again, it's, it's something that I just had to learn how to get used to more than anything. Um, and, and it's been an interesting, uh, few years I I have learned how to prioritize things better so like whereas you know four years ago five years ago I would have probably would have been like I want to work like 80 hours a week and I'm going to do this and I'm going to make this much money now I'm kind of like yeah I just kind of want to enjoy life here and there (laughs) and take time with spending time with my family and you know priorities change to an extent I still have very similar goals um and I kind of you know take every day uh uh, you know, by the moment and, and do what I can with every day. So I want to tap into those perspective changes a bit. And uh, the first category being what I mentioned at the top of the show, which is you're trying to communicate to your fellow healthcare professionals some of the lessons that you learned from the patient side of things and how maybe they can change how they deal with critically ill patients or any kind of patients. So give us some of that wisdom, hard-won wisdom. I think there's a lot of things that I learned from becoming a patient. And a lot of it just has to do with like 
I don't think it makes me a, a better doctor. People say that all the time, like, oh, you're probably such a good doctor because of what you went through. And like, no, because I don't think that you have to go through like a cardiac arrest or something crazy to actually be able to empathize with your parent, with your patients. But I do think that it gives you this extra kind of sense of what's going on. And I'm able to empathize with specific things, specifically like patients in the ICU, younger patients going through cardiogenic shock, patients who are going through transplant. There's like a very set, there's a set of people that I probably empathize with more than others. But at the same time, I've had a lot of, you know, amazing lessons from what I call patient school um, that, you know, medical school never really taught me. So even like the little things, like what it's like dealing with insurance authorizations, like the reason why I went into emergency medicine is because I hated dealing with insurance companies and billing and stuff. And I kind of just wanted to take care of what I can in front of me. And like, here I am now as a patient, like dealing with insurance companies all the time. (laughs) So, so it just gives me like this extra perspective that not many doctors also have, but not everybody has. And the fact that I share it, um, also help some people. There's, I don't tell every patient, but there are some patients that I, I tell my story to. And I think that just gives us a different kind of relationship. Yeah. Well, I can imagine, particularly somebody with heart issues that's young. Right. Yeah. It must be just amazing to see you there practicing as a physician and knowing that it could be okay, you know? Exactly. Yeah. What else do you think health professionals miss out on that you experienced on your way through this amazing journey? It's hard for me to pinpoint exactly. Um, there's just some things that like, I like even the basic things, like I know exactly what it's like to get a cath. I know exactly how important like a blanket is like when you're in the hospital, <laughs> um, those little things. Uh, I'm, I'm very careful with um, ordering blood tests because like I became anemic from how much blood they were, you know, getting from me when I was in the hospital. And that was annoying. You know, I've needed blood transfusions in the past. So there's like little things that I change my management about, but overall, it's just this sense of of knowing a few of these minute details that not everybody would know, um, even if they have been working in a hospital for a long time. But I'm very open about it. So I do tell my co-fellows and colleagues like to ask me if they ever have any questions, like, what is it like getting a chest tube? What is it like getting central line? Just ask me, I can tell you. So you know, from a really broad perspective, is there anything that you would change about medical education um, from a curriculum standpoint that would help with this? I do think that um, we, I don't think we did this in med school. So this would be something interesting to look into, but having like an actual patient come and talk to medical students once in a while about their experiences and how they're able to deal with things would give us a, a very different perspective that we're not used to like it's not part there's only so much that science could teach us right like like I remember one thing that you know we always read about the being in the ICU and ICU literature is how quickly you should get people off sedation even when they're on the ventilator you have to um, get their breathing tube out as soon as possible and there's only there's so much that the science tells us about how sedation is bad sedation is bad but once you've been in the patient's shoes and you've seen like how uncomfortable that tube really is like I totally agree that that tubes need to come out as soon as possible and you shouldn't be sedated for a long time but there's this new like humanizing side to medicine that I that I see um, that I feel like I can also educate others about so I think it would be nice to incorporate more patients into a medical school curriculum for sure. Or or grand rounds maybe. Yeah, right, right. And I do plenty of those. Um, 
and and it's interesting because I, I kind of feel like a weird connection because like doctors are always like, oh my God, you're a, my own doctors would be like, okay, you're a doctor too. And then other patients would be like, okay, but you're also a doctor patient. So is, do you see things differently than me? So I do have a very specific perspective that I think um, maybe, maybe others could benefit from. And, and whether it's me or other patients doing grand rounds, it would be a great way to educate others. Yeah. So the other, you know, perspective you've gained from this is appreciating organ donation, I'm assuming. And what what is your message about that? And particularly, I'm interested in what you think, if anything, can increase the participation in the United States. You know, there are other countries where they have an opt out mm -hmm. system. It's assumed you're going to be an organ donor unless you indicate otherwise. Here, it's a much different situation. Um, and our donation rates, although they've increased quite a bit in the last 10 years, it's still you know, behind other countries. So what, what do you think would help? I think educating others, even with simple stories like mine, um, I talk about my organ donor a lot. I know her family very well. Um, her name was Lucy and she uh, unexpectedly died. She was only 23 and she was actually a respiratory therapy student. So um, she, you know, her mom loves telling her story because Lucy's life goal was always to, you know, help save lives. And she did. She, she, you know, she was 23 when she died, but she was able to, to go on and save four of us. So it was me, two kidney transplant recipients, and then one liver recipient. And so um, just by telling my story, I've had people say like, I wasn't an organ donor until I heard your story. And I, and I think that in itself, being very open about what organ donation can do, telling these humanizing stories and being able to teach people, there are a lot of myths around organ donation. Um, so I feel like once you're able to bust those myths, myths, then then it also makes it easier. And so I think with time, especially now with social media and a lot more people being open about their chronic illnesses and transplants in general, hopefully um, we get more organ donors um, to become registered. Absolutely. And I'm going to put a plug in here for organ donation. It's very simple, quick, you can go to donatelife.org and find out how to do it. And, you know, something that some people don't realize is you can pick and choose what you want to donate. Right, exactly. Uh, maybe you're not comfortable yep. donating your eyes or so forth. But it's really simple. And then you're on a registry that providers nationally can tap into. And so when you get to the unfortunate situation, maybe, where you're in an emergency room in a trauma situation, um, you know, your wallet's not necessarily going to be there right, with you. Right, right. <laughs> And your family members might, might, might not, not know. Be, so yeah, it's, right, right. Yeah, it's it's a great thing to do and very simple to do. So, all right, PSA is over about that. Um, so, tell me a little bit about your your podcast. And I'm sort of amazed that you have found another <laughs> physician who's also a heart transplant recipient. There's actually plenty of us. Like when once I started my opening up about my journey and telling people about everything that I was doing and everything that I had gone through, um, I want to say by now. I think there's like 40 or 50 physicians that I've met with transplants. Not everybody's open about it, but I, but there are plenty. Wow. Um, and Kobe was one of the first. So he was the one who had messaged me on Twitter way back, uh, maybe a couple months after my transplant. And he was kind of like, I'm an internal medicine resident um, in New England and I have a heart transplant. His story's a little bit different. So um, he had heart issues when he was a kid and then ended up getting transplanted before med school. So it kind of like paved his career. He's now a cardiology fellow. Um, and it really like inspired him to go to med school. Whereas for me, it was, it was, it's similar, but different in that 
I also have a genetic mutation, but it was all sudden after my training. And so we get, we have very similar backgrounds, but different in that, you know, there's some things that he's gone through that I haven't and vice versa. So he had messaged me and he said something like, yeah, I'm an internal medicine resident and, you know, I have a heart transplant. If you ever have any questions, just let me know. And it's always nice. Like, I think one thing that we need to fix about this healthcare system is making sure that our own patients have good support groups. And with with our generation, like social media is is just as good, if not better than like in-person meetups most of the time. So even having like a support group on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, um, it's just so nice to know that there's others out there that you can talk to, it's not just your doctor. And so Kobe became that person for me. Um, and so years ago he had said like, we should make this, this uh, podcast and you know we think it was it was busy we were busy because we were both fellows like I was a critical care fellow and he's cardiology and like if there's two fellows that are like never (laughs) at home (laughs) those scheduling (laughs) problems must be pretty big so we started and now we're about to start our next season in a couple months so we're just kind of brainstorming but it's been really fun and we give different perspectives on like what, we, we try not to give medical advice, of course, but like just kind of things that we've been through um, as as doctor patients and then like kind of like our takes on vaccines and, and how important it is for transplant patients and things like that. So it's been it's been really, really nice. Yeah, that's great. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Both sides of the stethoscope. Mm-hmm. So um, as you may know, Osmosis is a teaching company and, lo- and we love to fill knowledge gaps. So is there something that's, you know, particularly important to you beyond what you've spoken about already that you wish people knew? They don't yeah. know. And you would say, yeah. hey, osmosis, can you make a video about that or something? I actually think there's not a lot of training about organ donation when it comes to medical education. And so if there's one thing that I like to hound on in any interview that I do, um, no matter what, uh, I like one takeaway point for me is to always remember that each organ donor can save eight lives and improve the lives of up to 75 others. Because it's not just the major organs that, you know, are procured. It's also tendons, corneas, you know, tissues, things like that. So skin. That's, yes, exactly. And so there's, you know, people even there's even doctors who don't know that. And, um, and when I tell them, they're like, wow, that's amazing. So that is one educational point that I like to tell people for sure. Um, so I would say that. <laughs> That's a great idea. So we always like to wrap up getting some advice from our guests for the learners in med school, nursing school, and so forth, and also the early career professionals who are in our listening audience about approaching a career in healthcare. What's your bottom line? I think there's a lot of times in medicine where something might happen to you and you feel like you might be burning out or you feel like there's just too much going on. And I think it's, it's okay to remember that at the end of the day, what you do really matters. And I say that with the intention of letting others know that like what happened to me was, is kind of what I was hoping would happen to my own patients, right? Like, like I was so suddenly ill, but I got resuscitated and I got better and I have this, you know, good quality of life that I was able to go back to. And so anytime you feel like you're not really helping, just remember that there are patients that you truly are helping, um, even when you don't feel like that. And I, I tell my own doctors all the time, I even remember going to the first cardiologist who did my cath when I was acutely ill and I told him something like, Hey, you know, thanks a lot. And he was like, that really means a lot to me. You know, we don't, 
really get this and I don't usually see this and and it really it stuck with me till this day because we don't always feel appreciated and we don't always see how important it is to be in healthcare so that would be my point to others yeah that's a great thing for folks to keep in mind because there are a lot of long tough days yeah <laughs> yeah in this profession <laughs> Well, listen, we'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and uh, wish you the best as you move along here in your healthcare career. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you. You too. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out the show today, everybody. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.